May I now request His Excellency, Mr. Pasering, to deliver his address. <coughs> Thank you, uh, Nonviolent non Alternatives, led by Mr. O.P. Tendon and Ribbon Banerjee. Uh, Mr. O.P. Tendon is my predecessor when I was working here in Delhi as Director of Tibetan Parliamentary and Policy Research Center, and Rebon Banerjee is someone I've been working with uh, from the German uh, Friedrich Norman Stiftung, who's also represented here by the Director, the South Asia Director, Dr. Karsten. Uh, so thank you very much for inviting me uh, for this conference, and I want to pay my respect to Ambassador Lakhanlal Merutraji, whom I've... And as... Uh, Tandunji said, uh, Merutraji still speaks Tibetan, and uh, the first word that came out of his mouth when I met him today evening was in Tibetan, as to how you're doing. Uh, so he's still very much there. And uh, Ambassador Walba for chairing the next session, and all the dignitaries have uh, known uh, Dr. Kondapalli for a very long time, but uh, uh, I was telling him I have to get back to him to learn more about the more recent developments. Um, and all the uh, invited guests, uh, dignitaries. I, of course, now the, you have so many experts today to speak about this particular subject, so I'll give a very broad brush to the uh, idea of uh, the uh, weaponization of uh, China's One China policy. And I want to, as I was reading about this, trying to understand more about this policy and the principle, I came across uh, one of our uh, finest uh, diplomat within the Tibetan community, Mr. Ludi Gary Rinpoche, who represented His Holiness during the talks between 2002 uh, to 2010. He is no more with us, but uh, I thought to honor him, uh, I will read the excerpt from his book on the One China policy and then maybe expand on some of the uh, issues that uh, concerns Tibet. And this Lodi Garish Rinpoche uh, book, uh, because he was the special envoy of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and he had worked in the United States for many years. This is from page 291 to 294 of his book, and I'll just quote him ad verbatim. Misrepresentation of the One China Policy. This is Lodi Gary speaking, not me. But I would like to digress for a moment to clear up an issue that has hampered some governments from feeling they could support our cause, that is the Tibet's cause. Despite the PRC's contentions, its current one China policy has nothing to do with the Tibet issue or the Sino-Tibet conflict as I referred today. Reference to my remarks to the Council of Council on Foreign Relations on April 23, 2012, that is when uh, Lodi gave a talk at the uh, Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., uh, should make this abundantly clear. The history of relations between Tibet and China and between Tibetans and Chinese is complex and cannot be understood simply in the context of the relatively young People's Republic of China. This may seem like an obvious assertion were it not for the fact that many of us do not study history, history sufficiently. Mm. 
and our friends in Beijing seem intent on convincing today's policymakers not only that Tibet is an inalienable part of China, but also that relations with the PRC must be predicated on a notion incorrectly applied to Tibet, that support for the Tibetan struggle violates the One China Principle. As I mentioned already, I wish to address a phantom cause for paralysis affecting the ability of some governments to put in place a credible and flexible policy on Tibet and the worsening situation there. This is the well-known but apparently ill-understood One China policy invoked by the Chinese government to prevent legitimate inquiry or engagements by members of the international community with respect to Tibet. The One China policy, as you must know, was created in the early 70s as the instrument that enabled the United States to establish relations with the People's Republic of China and maintain relations with the Republic of China or Taiwan. Then U.S. President Richard Nixon and his national security assistant Henry Kissinger were responding to the communist Chinese leader's need for assurances on U.S. policy with respect to Taiwan when they told Chinese Premier Tong Lai and Communist Party Chairman Mao Zedong that the United States was not pursuing a two-China policy. In the 1972 Shanghai, Shanghai communique, the United States was not pursuing, uh, the, the United States artfully acknowledge, not recognize, acknowledge that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait claim that there is but one China and that Taiwan is part of China and the United States does not challenge that position. This one China policy paved the way for the joint communique establishing diplom diplomatic relations between the United States and the People's Republic of uh, and, the, and the People's Republic of China on January 1, 1979, and the adoption by the United States Congress of the Taiwan Relations Act at the same time, at the same year. Under the 1979 agreement, the United States recognizes the PRC government as the sole legal government of China, while the Taiwan Relations Act sets out the nature of relations the United States would maintain with Taiwan in terms that were not inconsistent with the One China policy, but protected the status quo and therefore the status of Taiwan, whatever that might be. Adherence to the one China policy has been reiterated by successive American administrations, sometimes making explicit reference to the communiques, uh, the communiques mentioned uh, above or to Taiwan's unchanging status. Although the One China policy was artic articulated in the context of U.S.-China and U.S.-Taiwan relations, Beijing increasingly demands that other governments with whom it establishes or maintains relations also endorse this one-China policy. What is the relevance of this discussion to Tibet? If one has to look for any reference point for China-Tibet relations, it's not the 1972 Shanghai communique, but the 17-point agreement. In fact, the lack of relevance of the One China policy is precisely what I would like to address. No Tibetan government has ever claimed to be the government of China. So the application of the One China policy to Tibet, or for that matter, uh, 
the PRC government's One China principle that stresses the inalienability of both Taiwan and mainland China as parts of a single China simply does not arise. We have our differences with China's leaders when it comes to the history of Tibet and our historical independence from China, but as you well know, his Holiness the Dalai Lama's proposals and statements concerning ways to resolve the Tibetan question will envisage solutions that respects the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the People's Republic of China as the state is considered today. These proposed solutions call for the exercises by Tibetans of genuine autonomy within the People's Republic of China and within the framework of its constitution, not for independence. Yet the PRC government vigorously pursues efforts to extend the applicability of One China to Tibet. And in recent years, it has misled a number of governments into believing not only that the One China policy applies to Tibet, but that it restricts the extent to which the, their government officials can interact with Tibetan leaders in exile, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We believe that the intended effect, effect of China's initiative is to limit outside governments from playing a constructive role in pr promote, promoting a mutually acceptable negotiated solution for Tibet. Indeed, by accepting the applicability of One China to Tibet, governments are subtly <coughs> aligning themselves with the Chinese position that the Dalai Lama is trying to split China. While the PRC government is trying to intimidate some governments into believing that meeting with Tibetan exile leaders would violate the One China policy, in reality, this assertion is counterintuitive to the policy. If there, are a connection, if there were a connection, the adherence by any government to the One China policy would have the opposite effect. Since the policy was developed precisely to make it possible for the United States to continue to conduct relations with Taiwan while recognizing the PRC government as the sole government of China. If the, PR, if the policy were at all relevant to Tibet, uh, it then should enable governments to conduct relations with its Tibetan exile leadership and His Holiness the Dalai Lama without incurring Beijing's displeasure. Beijing's resort to this argument in an attempt to thwart nations from embracing the Tibetan cause is telling our efforts to elevate the Tibet issue to a prominent place on the global stage have been extremely successful. The PRC, in its concern over this united support, is forced to resort to this contrived and irrelevant contention. So this uh, I end quoting Gerimchi's uh, excerpt on how one China policy is misrepresented. So maybe I will continue by saying in this, all the experts know about this. I'm sure they will expand on this theory, but one has to make a differentiation between the one China principle and one China policy. So the one China principle, I think, started from the time when Chiang Kai-shek decided to move to Taiwan, and then it became two China. and. Uh, before that, uh, I think we can even go back to when uh, the United Nations was formed. And when United Nations was formed, ROC, which is Taiwan, and I think uh, many, many people who are not very familiar with the names might also have problems in understanding PRC and ROC. So 
Here you have People's Republic of China and then Republic of China, which is Taiwan. Uh, the People's Republic of China is mainland China. So if at the time when United Nations was formed, ROC was the legitimate representative of the Chinese people. And at that time, Tibet was an independent state. It was not occupied by China. So post Second World War and following the Cold War, uh, uh, the Chinese took this advantage of annexing Manchuria to East Turkestan, to Inner Mongolia, and Tibet from 47 to 49-50. And uh, then only uh, when China started invading Tibet uh, in October 1950 from Chamdo, then the whole issue of Tibet-China relations come into being. And uh, then we were forced to sign the 17-point agreement in May 1951 under the threat of war and violence by the Chinese government. Uh, the 17-point agreement is uh, a document which existed at that time, uh, which enumerates the kind of uh, liberties that the Chinese government is willing to give to the Tibetans. And that uh, uh, document provides for status quo of all the powers and functions and responsibilities of the institution of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, except for foreign relations and defense, uh, not even changing the political system of Tibet. So that was the thing, but Chinese government uh, trampled, started. In, initially, they were very nice to the Tibetans, and Tibetans even sang songs in praises of China and PLA. And then later they showed their true colors and they trampled on all the provisions of the 17-point agreement, even while we were trying to live under the provisions of the 17-point agreement. And uh, then uh, the Indian government had this trade treaty with the government of China, which referred to uh, Tibet as the uh, uh, Tibet region of China at that time. And then... Uh, we uh, Tibetans, uh, we were trying to live under China, but then the United States also decided to support Tibet's covert operations, initially by the special operations, and then later by the CIA uh, from 1956 to almost uh, about 1968, when we were talking about uh, U.S. Uh, uh, changing its uh, strategic policy on China. Um, then that was now post-Vietnam War. Uh, and in, when Tibet was being invaded in 1950, there was also the Korean War that was going on, which overshadowed the events in Tibet. And we did not manage to garner as much international attention and support for the Tibetan cause as much as we would have wanted to. Then um, by 1970-71, uh, Kissinger led this uh, change in policy. Uh, it is not as if the Western governments, and including India, were not trying to push UN, uh, the China's entry into United Nations, because China was pushing this since 1950. And there were attempts by countries like Canada and India and Albania to push for China's inclusion into the United Nations. And when China became part of the United Nations in 1971, there was the first joint communication, which is the Shanghai or the Shanghai communique. Uh, and then later, eight years after that, during Jimmy Carter's time, you had the 1979 uh, joint communique uh, that was, again, 
uh, in parallel, they also had the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979 to balance U.S. strategic uh, uh, policy in that area, again, which is termed as a uh, strategic ambiguity of the United States uh, in that front. So uh, the, the Taiwan-China uh, relations, uh, be, when you talk about the principles, it's mostly to do with Taiwan and China that there is only one China. So till about 1992, and then you have the consensus that, that was accepted or not accepted. And over the last 20, 30 years, there have been uh, quite a number of changes in the positions of governments. And as recent as uh, this year or last year, maybe perhaps from the time uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, visited China, uh, Taiwan, uh, things have been uh, taking a lot of shapes, uh, United States President even saying that they have uh, the right to defend China. So China, I think United States still uh, sticks to, restricts themselves to the three communiques and the six assurances that was developed during uh, 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 President Reagan's time, I think. The six assurances. So Chinese government interprets laws, agreements as per their needs. Uh, the United States government state statement does not say they recognize China, uh, China's sovereignty over, Tibet, uh, over Taiwan, but it's more acknowledgement of China's position. Uh, I think many other governments have also tried different ways uh, of, of reaching out. So I think one China principle is to do with Taiwan and China. I think there are so many experts who will talk about this. So there has been a lot of uh, changes in that, uh, the semantics, changes in semantics and rhetorics from, uh, from governments, all those have been going. So when it concerns Tibet, we are not part of that. So when you talk about Tibet, then you have to talk from 1945 to 51 to 54. And then, of course, uh, China always tries to get their, uh, uh, the, 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 what they want to India to say on Tibet. And uh, from India's perspective, you have the 1954 uh, Tibet region of China, trade agreement, then you have 1988 when uh, after 1962 the diplomatic relations were very bad and after Rajiv Gandhiji, the Prime Minister went to China in 1997-1998, so you had this, uh, uh, the, the terms that Tibet uh, is an autonomous region of China. And that was uh, repeated by Prime Minister uh, Narasimha Rao when he visited China in 1993. And in 2003, by Prime Minister Vajpayee when he visited China. At that time, I was working as director of Tibetan Parliamentary and Policy Research Center, and we did organize a seminar called Is Tibet Sold Out? Because the statement that came out of that joint communique was that Tibet Autonomous Region is a part of the territory of the People's Republic of China. So this is the present position, I would assume, from the Indian perspective. But then uh, there has been a lot of developments after that where uh, India is asking China to accept one India policy if India were to accept one China policy. But again, I wish to repeat that this one China policy or one China principle has nothing to do with Tibet. And Tibet, you will have to look at it from a totally different prism or a historical perspective. Uh, and 
see how uh, the international community can play a role in understanding this because I keep visiting different countries and meet with different foreign officers and uh, one time I told one foreign ministry that that does not apply to Tibet and he was taken aback but he didn't dare ask that question so we were at the end of the conversation. But I'm sure today's deliberations will uh, help understand uh, one China policy and one China principle and how that applies and how international community also need to understand the situation and react accordingly. Um, uh, all I can say is for China, whenever it, they feel that it is beneficial for them, then they accept the agreements and norms and other things and even defend that in international courts. But when it does not help their interests, they don't accept. They ac interpret it only the way they want to interpret and understand. So that is the unfortunate part, but we have to follow international law. And when it comes to international law, even now I say that uh, whether it's Ukraine today or Tibet of those days, international law was the same and it should apply to everybody. Tibet cannot be an exception to apply international law. And we tell governments that if you keep repeating the statement that Tibet is part of PRC, then you're going against international law. And at the same time, you see, keep saying that, and uh, then on the other hand, say that you support nego negotiation between representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the Chinese government. These two does not go together because China rules Tibet with an iron hand and then ask the international community to repeat this statement that Tibet is part of China. And uh, we also ask this question as to why China is asking the international community to say only Tibet is part of China or PRC, not other regions or not other nationalities within China. That is because, that is precisely because the Chinese government knows that Tibet has never been part of China historically. And that is the change in strategy that the Central Tibetan Administration right now follows internationally in explaining the Sino-Tibet conflict and the reason why it needs to be resolved and how it should not be seen from the prism of one China policy or principle that does not apply to Tibet. Thank you very much.